0: I'm Fabio Licinius, and I write for Vox about race and policy. And today, I'm your host for a special series, 40 Acres.
1: Reparations is about a debt that the federal government owes to all Black
2: American citizens of U.S. slavery. As a consequence of the failure to provide the 40-acre land grants.
0: It involves the historic acknowledgement of historic wrong and a recognition that the injury continues.
2: Literally, there is no reparations in the form of the payout of money that can undo what has been done.
1: I think apologies don't mean anything whatsoever. I mean, apologies are the easiest thing in the world. This is returning what was taken from a people.
0: Last week, we talked about the renewed case for reparations. Today, we'll explore the cost of reparations. If the federal government were to devise a plan for payments, what could it look like? I spoke with Duke University economist William Sandy Darity and folklorist Kirsten Mullen about the reparations framework they outline in their book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. As they write in the book, racism and discrimination have perpetually crippled Black economic opportunities. And they theorize that reparations, a program of acknowledgment, redress, and closure, could reverse inequalities between black people and white people by closing the racial wealth gap. Their framework is comprehensive and it unearths long standing tensions. Darity and Mullen are two of the leading thinkers on reparations. They're also a husband and wife duo. I caught up with them while they were at home in North Carolina. At times, you might even hear some household sounds or the occasional leaf blower in the background. It's a reminder that for them, this is more than policy, it's personal. And so that's where I started, with their own family histories, their connection to slavery in the United States, and how that influences their work.
2: On both sides of my family, my ancestors were enslaved in the United States on my mother's side my great great grandparents were held in bondage on a plantation called Rose Hill in North Carolina Rose Hill plantation was a relatively large plantation owned by the body family the white bodies my ancestors had the last name body also and so we referred to them as the black bodies And my great-grandmother, who I knew during my lifetime, was the daughter of these two individuals who had been enslaved on the Rose Hill Plantation.
1: In my case, on my mother's side, the family line goes back to Caroline County, Virginia, where my ancestors were enslaved by the Wise family. And then on my father's side, our ancestors were enslaved in Colbert County, Alabama. And I can remember when Jose and I took our older son to meet his paternal grandparents, who I didn't know to be particularly sentimental or even nostalgic necessarily. But my grandfather held the baby up in the air and pronounced him the fifth generation. And I didn't immediately know what he was talking about. But it was on his mind Hmm. that he was the fifth generation born free. I think on both sides of our family, Sandy's and mine, in terms of how we came to know what we know, both of our children were given the assignment to interview their oldest living relatives and learn as much as they could about their family's genealogy and how they came to be where they were. And they were very, just very garrulous and very animated, you know, talking to him about what they knew, and going back each generation, and then suddenly they just got silent, and that's all we know. We we can't share anything. We don't know anything else. Huh? And I thought, well, this is odd. You know, to come to it's like a, a little brick wall, you know, that they seem to be hitting. But I had heard some stories about relatives farther back, and I wanted them to share that with our son so that he could do well on his paper for school. But they were very reluctant on both sides to share what they knew because they were running headlong into family members who were the sons and daughters of the white people who had owned
0: us. And so it sounds like for the both of you, these stories were kind of there in your family to an extent. Like, was there ever a point where... You both had to go into the archives or do some serious digging through records to find out these stories as well? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay.
1: Because you get these little kernels. Mm -hmm. And my my feel is folklore and anthropology. And I always say that Black folklore is true. There may be some some details around the edges that need to be researched. But so often, the, the big picture, the stories that have been passed down across generations are almost always true.
0: It feels like reparations advocates are constantly having to make the case for reparations and needing to prove that Black America is owed. But then you flipped it and you're like, why should Black people have to continue to wait for the debt owed to them to be paid? Talk a little bit about why we should be reframing the question.
2: I, I think we've, we've thought for at least 30 years, I'll say, that there is an obligation that the United States government has to its Black American citizens who were descendants of persons who were enslaved here. And it's an obligation that stems from the government's failure to provide the newly emancipated freedmen with the 40-acre land grants that they were promised in the aftermath of the years of bondage.
1: You know, we like to say that Black people were the first abolitionists and that their ultimate goal was to obtain their freedom and also to be remunerated for the work that they had labored so hard to produce. This is not a, it's not a new quest as old as the arrival of the first African to this country. Sandy mentioned the failure of the federal government to provide those 40-acre land grants to the newly emancipated freedmen at the end of the Civil War, but we also know that at the same time, actually beginning as early as 1862, the Homestead Acts, that the federal government did provide land grants to white Americans, including recent immigrants to the United States, and that promise was not for 40 acres, for 160 acres land grants. And this is a policy that was carried out, in fact, by the federal government. We have learned recently that the last such patent was completed in 1980 in Alaska. So this was over 100-year-long commitment that the federal government made. You have these families that have the capacity as a consequence of this free equity from the federal government to pass on not only the profits from that land, but the land itself to their children. We know that 1.5 million white households receive those land grants in the Western territories, which translates to about 45 million living white Americans today who are
0: still reaping
1: the benefits of this single federal policy.
0: And when you talk about compensating Black Americans, are we talking about compensating them just for slavery, or are we also talking about Jim Crow and specific acts of racial terror that could have happened in the 1900s, for example?
2: We're actually thinking about the full panoply of atrocities and how they have wound down to the present moment to create this kind of disparity in wealth between Blacks and whites. Yes, it's the effects of slavery. It's the effects of the Jim Crow period of legal segregation. It's the effects of 100 massacres that were conducted during that period of time by white terrorists that resulted in the loss of Black lives and the seizure and theft of Black property. It's a consequence of the 20th century emphasis on home ownership that was applied discriminatorily under both the New Deal legislation and the GI Bill, resulting in a significant advantage in home ownership for white Americans in comparison with Black Americans.
1: I mean, you're probably aware of a number of groups that are attempting to focus on some specific harm, some specific atrocity that took place. And we think that these absolutely should be pursued, but they're different and separate from the racial wealth gap and its elimination.
0: Why are you focusing on the racial wealth gap in this context?
1: I mean, part of this is about what wealth will do for funds. What is the significance of wealth? And I think it's important to distinguish between wealth and income. Wealth can take the place of income, but income cannot take the place of wealth. You know, we think of income as, you know, one's earning. It's a consequence of actions, it's a consequence of work, you know, time spent producing services or materials for a fixed fee. Wealth, on the other hand, is A stock of assets. These are things that are happening while you're sleeping. Interest that's being earned on investments, on trust accounts, or you're receiving rents or you're receiving mortgage payments from some other individual for property that you own or control. Wealth is the thing that gives individuals a reserve, a cushion. Wealth is the thing that makes it possible for you to move into a neighborhood with high amenities, to put your kids in private, primary, secondary schools, elite colleges, if you choose. Wealth is a thing that makes it possible for individuals to obtain high quality medical care or legal counsel. Wealth is the thing that allows you, if you choose to participate in the political process. We know that it's really important in this country to not only vote, but if you're able to also support the political process financially, but not everybody can afford to do that. It's mostly people who have wealth who have this opportunity to participate in our political life in this way.
0: And what about the research that shows that the racial wealth gap is about the upper classes, that most of each group's wealth is concentrated within the upper classes. And so reparations might not overall address the racial wealth gap among all classes
2: of people. Well, it's bad research. 25% of white households have a net worth in excess of $1 million. And this is only true for about 4% of black households. If you were to examine the white households that are at the lowest end of the income distribution, those that are in the bottom quintile or what we refer to as the bottom 20% of the income distribution, they actually have a higher median level of wealth than all Black American households combined. So the differential in wealth resides all along the class structure.
0: And relatedly, should there be a cap, an income cap on reparations? Like, should the wealthiest Black Americans who would be eligible for reparations, should they be in the group of people able to get reparations? You know, this is not a poverty relief program.
1: Reparations is about a debt that the federal government owes to all Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. When you think about reparations payments that have been made in the past, internationally but also domestically, they didn't say, oh, this person is too wealthy to receive reparations. So, Mm -hmm. no, um, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, all these people would absolutely be eligible for reparations. Now, they could decide that they did not want to accept them if they chose. But they should not be excluded from reparations.
2: And, you know, they could make the decision to take their reparations payments and use them for whatever purpose they have in mind. One possibility would be to make a donation to the charitable organization that they prefer to support.
0: In your reparations framework, you've arrived at about $840,000 for each eligible Black household. How did you arrive at this number?
2: We calculated that number on the basis of the estimate of the difference in average wealth between black and white households that's reported in the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances, which is the most recent survey that was taken to provide information about household net worth. We arrived at the figure of eight hundred forty thousand nine hundred dollars which is the exact difference between white average household net worth and black average household net worth. If you multiply that figure across the total number of black households, that differential, that gives you a figure in the vicinity of $14 trillion.
0: And how much is that individually per person?
2: So we estimate that it's somewhere between $330,000 to $350,000 per person eligible Black American recipient.
0: And what about age? Like, are we considering this for people who are 18 and up or just anyone? The idea is that
1: everyone who meets the criteria for eligibility would receive the funds. But certainly individuals who are minors, those funds could be held in trust for them until they reach the age of maturity.
0: And how should the United States finance reparations? What proposals seem the most plausible to the both of you? Well, when
1: you look at what's happened just recently with within the pandemic, the relief payments that were made, the U.S. government simply made the decision that it would pay to assist Americans struggling with this pandemic. Taxes didn't go up. Initially, inflation did not occur. I think there may be an argument to be made that, you know, inflation has more to do with what has happened subsequently with supply chain problems related to the pandemic in part, or if you look at, you know, when the federal government bailed out the banks and other financial institutions, that didn't cause taxes to go up either. I mean, there's several options for paying the debt. You can direct the Federal Reserve to pay. You could direct the Treasury to pay. But because ours is a sovereign government, you don't necessarily have to tax to pay a
2: debt. And the debt person is talking about is the debt that is owed to Black American descendants of U.S. slavery as a consequence of the failure to provide the 40-acre land grants to the newly emancipated in the aftermath of the Civil War. What will happen when you have a new expenditure that is not supported directly by additional taxation is you increase the deficit, but you do not necessarily increase the national debt. In our book, From Here to Equality, in the final chapter, we actually talk about inflation as being the fundamental barrier to any new federal expenditures. And we talk about ways in which the reparations plan could be structured to minimize the inflation risk. We suggest that the payments could be spread out over multiple years. We say in the book that we wouldn't want it to be any longer than a decade but that would reduce the amount of expenditure that's associated with the reparations plan in any given year. We also say that you could provide the payments in the form of less liquid assets. So rather than making the payments exclusively take the form of some type of direct cash transfer, they could be provided in the form of trust account or some type of endowment or an annuity in such a way that people would be constrained about spending the funds immediately. But I think that the argument that a reparations plan would be inflationary is really an argument that presumes certain ways in which the plan would be executed and also that the individual recipients would not do any significant amount of savings out of the funds.
0: So I want to move on to this vision that I mentioned earlier about the reparations program that you all outlined. And you have this powerful acronym, ARC, which stands for Acknowledgement, Redress, and Closure. What do these words mean individually, and how do they each work together?
2: So acknowledgement is a recognition and an admission on the part of the culpable party that they have committed a grievous injustice. And that culpable party, in the context that we're talking about, we mean the United States government, that culpable party indicates that they're going to engage in an act of restitution for the atrocity or atrocities that they have committed.
0: What would a formal apology from the United States government look like? Is that Biden just getting on a mic somewhere and saying we're sorry for slavery? Or just like, what would even an apology from the United States government look like?
2: Each of the branches of Congress, I think, in 2007 and 2008, made apologies for slavery. But the Senate side of the apology precluded any kind of commitment to an act of redress. The apology that we have in mind is one that would come from the United States Congress, and it would come with a specific outline of the atrocities that the United States government is responsible for, as well as a commitment to do something about that in the form of compensation.
0: And were there just like, like a, a clause that said that? Oh, yes, yeah. Like, although we're apologizing, we're not providing redress.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. That's correct. Yeah, there's an explicit clause in the Senate's apology to that effect. Yeah,
0: yeah, So then what would redress look like under your plan?
2: So
1: it could be one of two things. It could, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. It could be restitution or it could be atonement. The complication with restitution, however, is that you're talking about restoring the survivors to the condition that they were in before the injustices took place. And this is not really possible to attain. Not only that, but many, many, many of the people who have been harmed have gone on. They are deceased, long deceased. But what one can do is to look at the people who are still living this legacy. As Sandy talked about, how the people who have borne the brunt of these three different epochs: period of enslavement, nearly 100 years of legal segregation or white terror campaigns, and the present moment where we're seeing police-involved shootings of unarmed Black women and men. Huge numbers, disproportionate numbers of mass incarceration, discrimination in education, discrimination in employment, in housing, in labor. I mean, basically, you're talking about the material means for full citizenship rights, giving Black Americans of U.S. slavery the wherewithal, finally, to step into their roles as full fledged American citizens. This has never happened.
0: And did you both also consider? the idea of like going to each family that's been harmed and asking them what they want on an individual level. like What would be the issue with going to each individual family and saying, what is it that you want? What do you feel would be sufficient to address the harms that America has committed against your ancestors and, and you present day?
2: I think you would get 40 million different answers, right. wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> I mean,
0: that
1: would be an endless task. We'd be the next millennium collecting all those stories.
2: Yeah, but I, I think that there are ways in which you could assess what the majority perspective is about what's desired. And I'm pretty much convinced that among those Black Americans who endorse reparations, they primarily would like direct payments to be made to them so that they would have full discretion over the use of the resources. Now, that clearly is not a universal position, but I think that that is the predominant consensus around what reparations ought to look like.
1: You know, And our rationale for that comes from our studying reparations efforts around the world that were successful. And when you look at the victims of the Holocaust, a large percentage of those reparations funds went to individuals and the estates of the individuals who
0: had been
2: harmed by the
1: Holocaust.
0: And so finally, with closure, what does closure mean in this reparations program?
2: So closure means a settling of accounts that the culpable party, in this case, the United States government, and the community that merits redress, in this case, Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, reach a mutual agreement that the bill has been met, that the debt has been paid. And this means in turn that the, the community meriting redress does not make any further claims on the United States government for compensation unless, and this is a critical unless, unless there is a renewal of the atrocities or a new type of atrocity that takes place.
0: We'll get Kirsten and Williams' plan for reparations, including one of the most hotly debated aspects of the current conversation. Who's eligible? talk about eligibility for reparations, which I feel like is, you know, the, the segment or the section where people have a lot to say in terms of who should qualify, but the both of you have identified something that's very clear, who you believe should be eligible for reparations. So can you walk me through what those eligibility requirements are and how you arrived at those criteria? So there are two criteria that we use.
1: know, one is that these are individuals who can demonstrate that they are descended from at least one person who was enslaved in the United States. But the second criteria, and both would need to be in place, is that these are individuals who have self-identified as Black, African-American, Negro, or Afro-American for at least 12 years prior to the enactment of a reparations program or the passage of legislation to put such a program in place.
0: And why the 12 years? That's always been my question, what I've wondered. So, we initially were thinking about 10 years, but it's actually the length of two senatorial terms. Mm. And why do you believe the person has to self identify as
2: black? Our concern is that you have some significant number of people who are living as white Americans who could probably demonstrate that they have an ancestor who was enslaved in the United States. And we are concerned that. Individuals who are living as white should not be eligible to receive reparations. We have the 12-year condition in because we don't want people to suddenly declare that they're Black once they know that reparations is something that is potentially going to be available to them. We don't want people to be Black by convenience. So that's why we have both of those conditions in place.
0: Yeah, and we've certainly seen that happening a lot, I think, in pop culture as well, just people kind of jumping into Blackness when it's convenient for them. So I think that's interesting. So my next question is just about genealogical research and just the time it would take for people to do this research. And and do people have the means to do this, especially when we consider the census, the 2020 census continued the longstanding trend of undercounting Black people? So how can we help people and make sure we don't leave people out?
1: So every day, there are more finding aids being created and placed online. Just in the last six months, the entire Freedmen's Bureau records have been placed online. But one of the provisions that we call for is the creation of a federal agency that provides genealogical research at no cost to individuals who are attempting to make their claim for eligibility. But yes, we understand that it's a time-consuming process. But the tools that are being utilized today are much more sophisticated and effective, especially because many, many, many more records, like all the
0: Black newspapers
1: now, are available and searchable online.
0: And why do you think this is being met with so much criticism or just people saying that your idea of eligibility is too narrow and leaves out people who have been living under White American supremacist violence for decades, and their families, you know, have been here for generations. Why can't they be included as well? Especially if we're thinking about the racial wealth gap.
2: Well, actually, there aren't that many Black Americans whose families have been here for multiple generations who are not connected in some way to uh, uh, to being descendants of persons who were enslaved here. But I, I think our point of view is Black people virtually anywhere across the diaspora have a claim for reparations, but not necessarily on the United States government. Haiti and Haitians have a claim on France. Perversely, France extracted reparations from Haiti. We think all of those money should go back to Haiti with interest, perhaps in addition to other compensation that's due to Haiti. The countries of the Caribbean that were former British colonies through CARICOM have been seeking restitution from the United Kingdom. And they've been very directive about that. And they have not included Black American descendants of U.S. slavery in their claim, nor should they. But simultaneously, then there should not be an expectation that Blacks from the Caribbean should be included in a claim that's being made by Black American descendants of U.S. slavery.
1: When you're talking about a group of people who voluntarily migrated to the United States, comparing them to folks who were forced here in shackles. I mean it strikes us as a, it's a bit odd that you know, all the places these individuals could have gone, they elected to come to the United States. And our question would be, you know did you not watch those newsreels? When you migrate to a country, you migrate to its history and to its obligations. And from our point of view, you know what would make perfect sense? would be for these Black people who are immigrating here from other places to say, we stand with Black American descendants of U.S. slavery, and we want to encourage the president, we want to encourage Congress to engage in a national redress program for them, that this is what needs to happen.
0: So my family did immigrate to the United States from Haiti in the 1960s. I want to say late 60s is one some of my aunts and uncles came over my parents themselves came in the late 70s and so i was having this discussion with my brother some weeks ago and he's like dang i just read somewhere that like the claim for reparations is for like people who are descendants of slavery in the united states and i was kind of the one telling him like doesn't that sound right to you like isn't that fair what i want to articulate is the feeling of there's a struggle that's happening across continents, across borders. The producer of the series, John Quilin, is descended from Black people who were enslaved in America. And we were having this conversation. She wonders, why wouldn't all Black people here make this claim? And she mentioned this sentiment that because our struggles are bound together, shouldn't we try to be more expansive? And almost it feels like, right, when you're born into a country of immigrant parents, it's almost like you grow up feeling like an outcast. For example, for me, I'm a race reporter. I write about race in the United States. And it's just fascinating to write about this, but then also kind of realize, like, yes, this is my story. But also, this is not exactly my story when I think about the history and write about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can think about all of these groups coming forward and making progress simultaneously,
1: side by side. Strengthening each other, drawing courage and you know, deep compassion from each other, but our stories are not identical. There's richness in our separate histories. And I think it's really important, especially given the work that you're doing to hold up those stories. You're far too young to have been around when there was an international push to put whatever kind of pressure to bear that you could to end apartheid in South Africa. I was a college student at the time and I joined a group called the African Liberation Support Committee. The marchers demonstrated in front of the Portuguese embassy as a protest against that government's colonial domination of Angola, guinea bissau and Mozambique. In front of the South African embassy and the Rhodesian Information Center because of their racist minority regimes which rule over the black majority population. And here, in front of the U.S. State Department to protest this country's trade agreements with South Africa and importation of Rhodesian chrome ore, despite a United Nations embargo against it. We were marching. We were writing letters. So there is definitely a precedent for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery like myself pushing for the end of apartheid in South Africa, which really had nothing to do with me personally, But I was personally offended by what was happening to those Black people. But I think that same kind of solidarity enacted on behalf of Black American descendants of U.S. slavery would be one of the most incredible things to create unity, to create, you know, more occasions for folk to delve into each other's history.
0: It only is divisive if we decide that that's what we're going to be engaged in. I do want to respond to your point, Kirsten, about kind of people seeing news stories and seeing what's happening in the United States and still making the choice to come. I do want to point out, like, if again, the the example of Haiti, right? We have the U.S. occupation of Haiti starting as early as 1915. I don't know. I feel like it's safe to say that in many cases for people leaving certain countries, maybe there isn't so much as like a free choice as opposed to something that you have to do to survive.
2: We can talk about the pressure to migrate, and we can identify many cases in the modern world where people are forced immigrants or forced migrants. But what is somewhat different is, to some degree, they frequently have some options about where to go, even if they have to leave their home country. Whereas in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, There was no discretion on either side of the process. That does raise the question as to why people might choose to migrate to a blatantly racist country if they are Black. And so there must be some perception that there's some benefit to them for coming here that would more than offset their potential exposure to racism.
0: So I want to get into another aspect of the conversation that's happening among the African diaspora in America. At one point, the group Eidos, American Descendants of Slavery, aligned with your work. The group's been called xenophobic and anti immigrant by critics. So, what is your relationship to Eidos, and what do you make of the broader Eidos movement that has emerged in the past few years?
2: Well, I think that there's uh, at least a couple of things that we think resonate well that emerged from the Eidos movement, at least initially. The first is The view that out of multiple diasporic communities, black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States are their own unique cultural and national community. And then the second thing is that reparations from the United States government should target that community specifically. So, on those two points, I think there's no inconsistency with the positions that have been taken by individuals who align themselves with ADOS. We depart from the anti-immigrant rhetoric that some people in the ADOS movement have adopted, and I think there is, has been somewhat of a tendency to conflate the Eidos movement overall with a subset of individuals who espouse those kinds of positions.
0: Coming up, there are reparations projects happening all over the country. But are these efforts enough to pay the debt that's owed? been vocal in your criticism of the smaller reparations projects happening around the country. I think of what's underway in Evanston, Illinois, or at colleges and universities like Georgetown University, for example. Why do you think it's ineffective to focus on individual perpetrators and in smaller institutions, or what you call piecemeal reparations? Let's take for example
1: this piecemeal project in Evanston, Illinois.
2: Evanston, Illinois is a suburb on Chicago's north side lakefront. It's the home of Northwestern University. About 16% of its 75,000 residents are black. This week, the Evanston City Council voted eight to one to begin to make good on its promise to spend $10 million in reparations over 10 years. First up, $400,000 to compensate for past discriminatory housing practices. Individual grants of up to $25,000 a person to Black residents who can show they or their families lived in the city between 1919 and 1969. The money can be used for down payments, mortgage payments, repairs or home improvements.
1: Almost all- now we know that the current market value of a new house in Evanston is about $450,000. So you have a house that you're comfortable with, but you really could use some help with your retirement account or you'd like to contribute that to your children's or your own college tuition, or you'd like to pay off a loan. You can't do that. Not only that, the money goes not to the individuals, but directly to the banks. And what we've learned is that these are the same banks that disadvantaged Black borrowers in the first place so this is basically a housing voucher program masquerading as reparations and it's fine to have a housing voucher program but call it that our concern is that as the you know as these projects pop up that there will be many people who oppose reparations who will say we don't need a national program why are we even talking about this it's done so we think that you know language is really important let's call those projects racial equity initiatives and leave the term of reparations for this sacred mission of eliminating the racial wealth gap, of putting the U.S. government in the position that it has always been of the culpable party and the capable party, the party that's responsible for creating and maintaining the racial wealth gap.
0: Critics have argued that reparations aren't enough. Like I remember Obama during his presidency saying that Reparations are the easy thing to do, but reparations take us away from doing the hard work, which is you know passing policies that would support Black Americans long term. So, does your framework consider other policy implications, and if not, why not?
1: Let me say first, you know, reparations is not easy. If it were, we'd already have them. And you know, I always say, let's let's run that experiment, <laughs> right? And deliver reparations, and then we can talk about what else needs to be done. You know, in our book, From Here to Equality, we never say that a cash payment is all that needs to take place. We talk about all of the difficulties that Black Americans of US slavery are dealing with today. You know, discrimination in housing and education and employment and credit markets. We talk about Black people's exposure to environmental hazards. We talk about anti black violence at the hands of police and mass incarceration. And we say that, you know, reparations claim that black Americans of U.S. slavery would be making against the U.S. government would not be fulfilled until all of these atrocities have ended and the new ones have not been visited upon the eligible
2: community. We have had a host of social programs in the United States. If we go back to at least as early as the New Deal, there has been multiple social programs. Those social programs, for the most part, have been income supplement programs. They have not been programs that were designed to build people's assets, and in particular, not to build black people's assets we are talking about an asset building strategy for black Americans that would bring their level of wealth up to a level that would be on par with the net worth that is held by white Americans.
0: So as the two of you have outlined for us today, you have a very comprehensive vision of what a reparations program could look like and why we need reparations. So I'm curious, what are you still trying to figure out about reparations? Are there any big questions that the both of you are still
2: grappling with
0: as the experts?
2: I think the biggest question for me at this point is, how do we sustain the momentum in growth and support for reparations, particularly from white Americans? circa the year 2000, only about 4% of white Americans endorsed reparations as payments to black Americans whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States. And today that figure is closer to 30%. And so the great question is, given that sharp, sharp change in support, is how can we push that figure closer to 50 to 55% of white Americans to make the prospect of actual adoption of a comprehensive reparations plan a reality. This is the
1: moment, I think, for a lot of young people today. This is another opportunity to stand up and be counted, to lobby and petition Congress, to talk to people in your formal and informal communities, your family, your classes, the people that you work with, but also your book club, your artisanal beer collective, you know, your ultimate Frisbee group. And I just want to encourage your listeners to embrace this moment.
0: Kirsten and and William, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for the
2: opportunity to discuss these important issues. Thanks for talking with us.
0: Next time in our miniseries, 40 Acres... Are reparations really the answer to inequality in America? Race has
2: often functioned like a shorthand for class.
0: Marxist scholar Adolf Reed Jr. about why reparations may not be the answer we're looking for and what we get wrong when we talk about race in America. 40 Acres is made possible with support from the Canopy Collective and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Our producer is Jonquilin Hill. The Vox Conversations team includes Eric Janikis and Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. And A.M. Hall is our Deputy Editorial Director.